Uh, I should say that this is very much a proposal, proposal, and it's more of like work that I'd like to do, things I've been thinking about for a long time. I have a background a long time ago in computer music at Karma at Stanford, but I haven't done any work on that for, since I was an undergraduate, basically, or, or an early postgraduate. Um, this is different kind of stuff, but it's just to let you know that I'm not, it's, I'm sort of a newcomer to the area, but uh, in a way I'm not. So it's a strange mixture of uh, having thought about ideas for a while, but not really knowing work that's been done recently. So I'd like to know, you know, definitely tell me during the break or whatever, or even during questions, if you say, oh, you really should check out so-and-so's work because they're doing that already, or, um, or no, someone's already tried that and that's not going to work. You know, just let me know about what, what I don't know. Yeah, that would be great. Okay, um, so my goal in this work is to design some kind of robot environment system that will hopefully produce some kind of uh, creative behavior on the part of the robot. Um, and by creative, I just mean, I don't have a good account of this, but I mean roughly something that's novel, at least for the robot, maybe not for us, but of value to us, hopefully of aesthetic value to us. So it's not just going to be the robot's aesthetic, uh, appealing to the robot uh, in, in an aesthetic sense, but hopefully also to us. So the goal there will be to try to get the robot to have an aesthetic sense that's similar to ours in some way, if that's possible. Um, and I'm taking an engineering approach. I'm not trying to model human creativity, aesthetic creativity. I'm just trying to get this robot to do something interesting. And if I can steal ideas along the way from what we know about human or animal creativity, then that's fine, but if not, then not. Um, so it's very pragmatic in that sense. And uh, even though I'm not intending to model human creativity, it could turn out that we understand something about human creativity by doing this. Um, I'm allowing for that. So this is only a manifesto. No implementation yet. Sorry about that. Um, but to mix metaphors, I'm going to uh, I've, I've used this term, uh, I've referred to the planks of my manifesto or platform as axioms, so it's really confusing. But I'll identify some nine take-home axioms that you can kind of, digestible assumptions I'm making that you can argue with me about or, or take home and say, yeah, that's a good idea or no, it's not a good idea. But I'll, I'll highlight them in red so you, if you won't miss them. And I'm going to be using... Although this is so abstract and theoretical as to be applicable to maybe a lot of areas of aesthetic creativity, nevertheless, I'm going to assume, whenever I try to give an example, when I think about this, I'm thinking about musical output. I'm thinking about sound generation and how you could have creative sound generation. Okay, that's the background. I'm not going to explain that. The underlying architecture is basically a, let's see, um, a recurrent neural network but used in an interesting way, so it's not just a simple recurrent neural network. But this neural network enables uh, a robot to have a predictive forward model of the environment, an anticipation of what it should expect to experience, or what inputs it should receive, were it to make particular actions in the environment. Um, so that's what that says. And um, in conjunction with motivators, that is reasons for acting, something to get the robot to do something, um, that can allow the robot to um, select actions that carry an expectation of pleasure. So if the robot has a good way of predicting what would happen if it were to move in a particular way, and it has also some way of expecting whether or not that would, be a, uh, that would yield in a situation that's rewarding or not, then the robot can use these expectations as a way to guide what it should do. There, you know, avoid situations that are going to cause pain and 
try to try to take actions that would yield situations that would uh, give pleasure, uh, in some sense. So how does this apply to creativity? Well, the main idea of application is that if we add some uh, motivate the basic motivators that a robot might have are things like bumping into a wall is bad, is painful, so avoid actions that cause you to bump into walls. Um, but if we add some more interesting motivators um, corresponding to the two dimensions of creativity, what I, what the ones I identified, value and novelty, then maybe we can get a robot to act creatively. Um, so the first idea is that if you make your robot a pleasure-seeking robot, that is, avoid things that are painful, seek out, perform actions that you expect to yield pleasurable situations, and if you make creativity pleasurable, that is, build in motivators that value, that sorry, that, that make each of these types of situations pleasurable, then you'll make your robot creative, hopefully. Or at least it's trying to be creative. So what do I mean by motivators for value and motivators for um, novelty? Well, let's take, let's take a look at value first. The second assumption might be, to be a good creator, it helps to be an appreciator. I think a lot of, as, you, as you'll know, a lot of um, uh, computational creativity or artificial creativity work has been done completely independent of the appreciation of work. So these are like, um, say, musicians never listen to music, creating lots of music, um, or never, not even being able, to, being able to listen to music, never having been able to listen to music, nevertheless creating music. And that can be a value. I'm not saying you know, there's not a, a potential artistic value to that, but there's a, a certain kind of aesthetic value that I think can only be produced if you are an appreciator of that genre in question. So the idea here would be to make the robot an appreciator I don't know about first, but at least have it at the very beginning being an appreciator, at least at, at, at the same time as it's being a creator. So um, this, I've called this model the CNM, don't worry about that. Um, so it should have the ability to evaluate the output of itself and others, not just itself, not just others, but both. And uh, I mean this in a, in a very direct way. I don't mean, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. <coughs> That is, it should be able to feel pleasure upon experiencing the outputs of itself and outputs of others, depending on whether these outputs have the right kind of you know, value and novelty that I'm talking about. So this is the first step, being able to um, evaluate something. Um, and because it can evaluate its own work, then it can use that valuing of its own work as a guide in deciding what to do. If it anticipates that it would produce something that's not so valuable, by doing this action, uh, but it would produce something that would give it a pleasurable experience by performing that action, then it can favor that the second action. Okay, um, coupled with this is third idea, let the robot experience output in the real world as we do. Um, what I mean by this is the robot isn't going to, uh, say, evaluate one of its own works by, say, um, looking at a MIDI file that it's produced and just going, hmm, yes, that's quite good, yes, I like that, very toe-tapping. No, it's going to actually hear the, very, the output, the same output that we do, acoustically. So it doesn't, um, usually a lot, of, a lot of work short circuits this, uh, this loop and doesn't include the world, but just has an inner simulation of the world, has a digital specification of an output, and that digital, uh, that digital specification is inspected and there's this very austere appreciation process which doesn't actually involve any sound waves being generated in the case of music or doesn't involve any uh, paint hitting canvas in the case of ar artistic work. Um, so uh, contrary to that, I am saying 
avoid the input bottleneck. You don't have to feed in lots of MIDI scores of Bach in order to give it an idea of what Bach sounds like. You let it hear whatever's playing on your stereo, or let it hear a concert. You know, of, uh, take it to take it to the uh, concert hall with you, or um, but at the very least, let it hear um, actual recordings, vibrations in the air. Um, and this would allow the robot to, robot to be learning all the time. You don't have to have a phase. Now it's in the learning what it's like to, to hear music phase. You can have it listening to natural sounds, listening to conversation. All the time it will be getting some input and um, developing, deciding what it likes aesthetically and what it doesn't. Um, so it learns reality, not our idea of what musical reality is. These um, uh, particular concertos or whatever, MIDI files of these concertos. And I think that will increase the likelihood that there will be some constants between what it um, values and what we value, because it's embodying a shared world. Um, but that's not going to be enough. It's not going to be just providing some kind of tabula rasa and just throwing the world at it, hoping, uh, hoping that it will uh, acquire the same taste as we have is, is obviously not going to work. You have to build in some kind of basic preferences like we have. We won't like what it likes unless it likes what we like as well. So we're not going to like its output unless it already has some basic preferences similar to ours. For instance, in the uh, musical realm, let's take a hackneyed example of a preference for integer frequency ratios. Of course, this is, can always be transgressed, but the starting point will be some basic preferences that, and, and you can have a basic preference for that uh, kind of um, uh, input built in. And if it anticipates that this action would yield an integer uh, frequency ratio of sound, then it prefers it to an action that it might take that wouldn't yield that. Uh, also, I think sociability is very important uh, in achieving this commonality of values. I think an important motivator in creative work is the approval or attention, at least, of others. And therefore, um, well, you can do that in two ways. Either you can have an indirect preference, you can give the robot a preference just for human proximity or human input. If humans are hanging around the robot or, or somehow in giving input to the robot, uh, then that's a sign that the robot's doing something interesting, and so it should take that as a, as a positive reinforcement. Um, but, or you can do it more directly. You can have buttons on the robot that you know, is a more conventional way of giving feedback, and I think with these artificial systems is to just have an explicit signal. Now, Paul's already talked about the problems with that, if, at least in genetic algorithms. You know, if you're trying to go through thousands of generations, you don't have to be there looking at all this rubbish and saying, no, 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 don't like it. Don't. Oh, yes, okay, I like that one. You know, it's very time consuming. So I'm hoping to instead have these indirect values where, um, uh, where there can be feedback just because uh, the robot realizes that what it's doing now seems to cause uh, more uh, human interaction than before, or interaction with, for instance, another robot. Now, Rob Saunders' work has already been mentioned. And I'm taking as a starting point this idea that maybe this is a slide from Rob, one of Rob's talks. Um, I'm taking as a starting point this idea that um, I'm making the move to the novelty part of the talk that um, <coughs> you might reward a process for the novelty of the situation that it's experiencing um, right now, or the output, or the, the novelty of its own output. Um, and so this hump-shaped curve might, for instance, might be a a Wundt curve that uh, would reward, uh, you know, low novelty isn't rewarded at all, whereas uh, a more novelty yields a lot of reward, but then if it gets too novel, uh, too unexpected or hard to assimilate, then um, the, the reward goes down. Well, 
I thought there was something right about this, but also something a bit mistaken about this. So I've done a little bit of a shift and instead prefer to talk about um, complexity and having a Wundt-shaped reward curve for complexity. Axiom 6 is that sometimes it's better not to try to pursue novelty directly, but pursue something that's correlated with novelty, and then you'll get novelty as a side effect. Um, so you build a system that prefers outputs of its own, or actually any, anything, it, it doesn't have to be its own outputs, but including its own outputs, that are on what you might call the subjective edge of chaos. What does that mean? Well, these, these experiences are almost, but not quite, ones that elude understanding. So if it's too easily understood, then it's not on the edge of subjective edge of chaos. If you can understand the input instantly, like, like uh, af after a few notes of this, na, 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 you know it's coming, and it's boring. It's na, 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 na. It's just it's a pattern that repeats forever. And given that you've heard that a lot before, uh, you don't really find it that interesting. It's too easily assimilable. Um, but if something's too difficult to understand, that is, isn't understandable, that is, doesn't have any pattern for you, like a completely, to you, random signal, like white noise, or maybe for a lot of people, uh, atonal music, um, that's too hard to try and assimilate, even if it can't, even if it, assuming it can be assimilated at all. So that doesn't really yield much pleasure either. The idea is, here is that aesthetic pleasure, uh, at least this component of it, involves uh, perceptions on the subjective edge of chaos that you can grasp if you try hard. If you stretch yourself, you can actually get there. And what getting there means, say in this case, being able to, say, predict parts of the, uh, past, parts of the uh, uh, input from other parts of the input. So uh, you'll still have pleasure being a hump-shaped function, but it won't be a hump-shaped function of absolute novelty. It will be a hump-shaped function of how much effort you took to explain, predict, assimilate, understand this input. And I think if you, I've already given that example, if you, if you build that in, to build this motivator into the robot, then it's going to try to generate uh, outputs that constantly stretch its ability to predict it, um, what's going to happen next. So it won't be happy with the, with the boring, with the simple, and it won't be happy with just random generation. It's always going to prefer actions that can, that produce things that can be understood, but only if you stretch yourself. And this will yield a coevolution between its predictive abilities and its generative abilities. Uh, moving into the novelty uh, part of the novelty value uh, components of creativity, the seventh axiom, and remember there are only nine, so we're almost done. Uh, the seventh axiom is that dynamic should play um, a role in appreciation. And we've already seen this follows directly from the uh, previous uh, point about um, having the subjective edge of chaos being relevant, because the subjective edge of chaos is a moving target. I mentioned coevolution. As I produce things that challenge me, I learn. I, I'm now a better predictor than I was before. And now that I'm a better predictor, things that previously challenged me don't challenge me anymore. So I'm always going to be, there's going to be a dynamics here. Um, uh, that's the third way that there's a dynamics here. Uh, the first way is that the pleasure associated with getting it depends on how much time it took to get there. So if it takes you a while, it's not, if it takes you a long time, it's not quite as pleasurable as something that takes a little bit of time. And something you get right away is, at least, is um, also not very pleasurable. Um, but there's another way that time comes into it, which is even if 
the earlier portions of a piece are unpredictable, um, like just the first few notes. How could you possibly predict what they're going to be? Nevertheless, um, that unpredictability might uh, uh, be offset by the fact that once you get a sample of the work and then can expect have reasonable expectations about the rest of it, then uh, that uh, ability will override the uh, lack of aesthetic um, value for the first few notes, perhaps. And then I already made this point. Uh, what it finds challenging, what's on the subjective edge of chaos, changes as it learns. Um, I already mentioned something about being able to evaluate your own outputs, but uh, there's another way in which self-appreciation is relevant here. Let's see what's going on. Um, axiom eight is that um, this, this observation that patterns in one's own states can be the object of appreciation, not just one's own output, but one's own internal states. For instance, one's pattern of motivations, one's uh, current levels of pleasure and pain, one, one's current representations, uh, those can actually be, if, if you give the robot uh, the ability to introspect them, that can, those can themselves be objects of appreciation. And the, uh, you might get more interesting or more complex, more novel uh, types of behaviors if the uh, aesthetic pleasure in those certain patterns of, uh, in, you might call them internal states, uh, internal experiences, are also what's driving the robot to do what it does. Now that's only going to be a path to novelty, I think, if the agent has some limited access to its own processes. So ironically here, less is more. Knowing less about yourself can be a better way to produce novelty because um, if you knew exactly what uh, you're going to do, um, then you'll never be surprised by what, happened, what, what, what your internal states are. But if you have some model of yourself and it isn't quite correct or complete, then you can be surprised and challenged a little bit about what, what happened what the, the states that you produce, and that will be uh, interesting to yourself. Um, and this will only work if the way that you change your internal states is indirectly by changing the world. If you can actually just change your internal state on a whim, then that's no good. It's, it's, it's only because we have to interact with the world to activate our pleasure centers that um, we get motivated to do lots of crazy things, uh, interesting things. If we could just turn on our pleasure center at will, then we'd be like those laboratory rats who figured out that pulling who are wired up in such a way that pulling the le lever activates the pleasure center, the pleasure center, and they don't do anything else. They just pull the lever until they die. So similarly, we have to make sure that the robot can only change its internal states by interacting with the world. Yeah, okay. Um, the last axiom emphasizes embodiment. I've already emphasized the embodiment of the robot a couple ways, but um, the ninth axiom is that the best way to make outputs in the real world is to be embodied in the real world. So this is like the reversal or the complement of uh, the avoiding the representational bottleneck on the in way in. Now we're avoiding the, uh, the bottleneck on the way out. We want to have the output of the, of the uh, robot be in the real world, not just creating a specification of, a, of, a, of, of some music that can later be translated by somebody else into music. But the robot itself has to be able to make things that it itself can hear. And that way we won't require human intervention. And it allows for serendipity because there's this gap, <laughs> this notorious gap, uh, between what you intend your artwork to be like and what actually happens in the real world. And that important gap is often uh, ignored or, or ruled out a priori in a lot of um, not disembodied computational um, creativity work. So I want that to be allowed for. And it dovetails nicely with the uh, um, real, actually, 
the robot actually perceiving real works, um, it should produce real works then. And I won't go into that, this is not the time. And the last slide is implementation issues. This is getting a little bit, bringing things down to earth a little bit. Uh, my intended platform are these um, IBO robots, these dog-like zoomorphic sort of robots. And picture will here in a second, I'm sure. Um, there you go. And um, the problem is <laughs> they're not really designed to be great sound generators, right? You can't imagine giving these things musical instruments. How are they going to make sound, right? Now, of course, they've got a chip that can allow them to make sound um, in a disembodied way. Um, but that's really against the, the whole spirit of what I've been talking about. So the idea I've been toying with is to actually, these things are good at physically moving in the world. So maybe I should just set up a mapping between different uh, joint configurations of the robot and different sounds that the sound chip will, uh, will give off. So when the robot's in one particular configuration, there's one particular, particular dynamic going on, one sound is generated, and as that changes, the output sound changes. So if the robot wants to produce different sound, it's got to move. It's got to actually move in the real world in order to generate the sound. It can't, it, it, it can't just will a particular sound to come out of its speaker. It's got to do something in order to do that. And I think that will meet the embodiment requirements that I mentioned um, at the end. So speaking of the end, that's the end. And I just want to thank the people who've uh, given me feedback so far on these ideas. And I hope to add your name to the list. Thanks. <laughs>